movie that goes from bad to worse. Have you ever wished you hadn't started reading or that book or watching that movie as a result? Uh, I've done that many times. Um, I don't enjoy it. I, I read a book uh, a little while back about the life of Aaron Burr uh, by Nancy Eisenberg. It's called Fallen Founder. Alan, Aaron Burr is that, uh, the man who shot uh, and killed Alexander Hamilton and made famous by the Broadway play as the bad guy. By the way, if you examine their history, uh, they're both pretty much bad guys, not just Burr. Um, but um, I read that biography not because I was trying to figure out who was the bad guy between Hamilton and Burr, but because Aaron Burr is the grandson of probably the most famous American theologian and pastor, Jonathan Edwards. And I, uh, like you right now, I imagine, my curiosity was piqued to wonder what happened. Um, what happened to this man? To, to give you the, the short answer, uh, I, I think it had to do with the fact that when he was young, a baby, his famous grandfather and grandmother, godly, amazing people, died from a small smallpox epidemic, as well as his father, Aaron Burr Sr., who is the, one of the founders and one of the second president of Princeton. Um, he died, uh, and his wife, uh, Esther Edwards Burr, also died. So he was sent away to live with other people that were not godly influences, is what happened. And sadly, his life... Uh, was a worldly one. The book itself is really well done. It's thoroughly researched, it's well written, it's prize winning. 540 pages of pure torture. As you watch this man's life, this son of promise become a son of perdition. He gets himself in deeper and deeper and deeper and indeed he, insu he suffers injustices but there's no heart cry to God for help really. No true humility faith only plotting and planning, falling and failing until it's finally all over at the end of a tragic broken life. I don't like stories like that. And I'm sorry to say today we have a story like that. We're going to look at the story of an individual and a whole family line that goes from bad to worse. Last week we learned about the fall of mankind into sin. In this chapter, things only get worse, and then they get much worse. But there's hope. There's hope at the end, because there's a God who is eternally good, and His light can never be quenched. The darkness does not overcome His light. And so I believe this chapter will teach us two things. One is to abhor sin, and secondly, to hope in God. Let's pray, and we'll dig into God's Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You, Lord, that Your Word is living and active. This isn't mere information. These aren't mere stories. These are living words intended and used by You to, to impart life. And, and You knew today that we'd be meeting here, going through this chapter, even back before these things happened. And in Your sovereign goodness, Lord, You've designed good for us through Your Word. So come, Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear that we could encounter you through your word. Um, we could understand these things and we could walk in your ways as a result. And you would be glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read together Genesis chapter 4. 
Now Adam knew, wife, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of, the, of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Instead of Cain, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also, was, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon 
the name of the Lord. Genesis chapter 4. So let's dig into this and learn the lessons of abhorring sin and hoping in God as we look at the life of Cain and what follows. So first I want to look at Cain from bad to worse, verses 1 through 16. So Adam and Eve in our story uh, are uh, intimate and she conceives and bears a boy and he gets the name Cain. Notice it says why his name is Cain. Cain means get uh, or got uh, or gotten. It's basically the, the same word. And Eve uh, is thinking about this new life in those terms. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I have obtained a man. It's interesting. It's a, a man with the help of the Lord. Not that he was born a man, but human, a male who would be a man and all that that means. It's notable to pay attention to the names of the people in this passage, particularly the names of the sons in the context of the whole passage. So in the beginning we have Cain and his name and why that was his name. At the end we're going to have Seth and why that was his name. And then we're going to have different lines, family lines from those two people. And those lines are drastically different. So there's something going on here in the names and in the meaning of the name. And we should suspect that maybe there's something amiss here because Eve says, I have gotten a man with the Lord's help. Who is getting? She is. It's with the Lord's help. There's, there's something amiss a little bit there. Some, there's some reason for concern, I think, in his very name. Certainly his life is going to demonstrate that there's a problem. The name of his brother that comes along later at some point is Abel. Abel is the same word uh, for vapor. And we were in Ecclesiastes a little while back, right? And you heard that probably Hevel um, over and over again, vapor, 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 or vanity of vanities, or meaningless, meaningless, literally it's vapor, and so he is named Vapor, interesting, we don't know exactly why, but the, the name means something, if we follow along the lines of the names and the progress here, maybe uh, after having Cain and dealing with the problems with Cain, uh, in their thoughts on parenting had radically changed and they were like, this is meaningless. I have no idea how to do this. Let's name him Vapor. I don't know. It may also be because his life was so short, like a vapor. Yet he is a righteous person. Hebrews 11 mentions him in the, uh, as the first person in the list of the people of faith. Jesus describes him as the first prophet martyred in Luke 11. There is substance to this man's life whose name is Vapor. There is real substance. But in terms of this world, his life is a vapor. And his name and life contrast greatly with Cain's. Now in terms of the names, we're going to see later uh, the son that comes up. We already heard as I read it. His name is Seth. And Seth's name means appoint. And Eve says God has appointed a replacement. Notice how Eve speaks differently about Seth. There's no I in that statement. God has appointed a replacement for Abel. 
So that's going to be a key theme here, uh, just to recognize and, and helps us understand this passage and fits right in, by the way, just so you don't think, well, this is a novel way to understand chapter 4, fits right in with what we're going to see elsewhere in Genesis as God works and how he works and what's important for being people of faith versus people who continue the rebellion. So we'll get into more of that later as we go. Well, the storyline continues. You have Cain and Abel, and they bring God offerings. Cain brings grain. He's a farmer. Uh, Abel brings a firstborn sheep. He's a, 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 a shepherd. There's no immediate obvious difference in the quality of these offerings. They're both appropriate for their occupations. There's, there's nothing uh, inherently clear that there was a problem about the offering itself. Um, it's not that God likes lamb better than grain. Um, it's not that it was a firstborn and the, and the grain maybe wasn't first, the first part of the crop. There's nothing to confirm that uh, in the text, though some people have tried to explain it in terms of that. That's not, I think, where the answer is found. The answer is found elsewhere where this reality is explained, the life and the offering, the difference. Hebrews 11.4 uh, says explicitly that faith, that Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice by faith. And John, 1 John 3.12 tells us that Cain's deeds were evil and Abel's righteous. And that's our answer here, I think, about this offering. That The difference was that Abel gave simply out of his faith in the Lord and his love for God. And Cain gave for other reasons. It wasn't the outward quality of the offering that was the problem. It was the inward quality quality of the offerer that was the problem. Cain had probably motives besides faith and love. He probably had evil motives. We don't know. We don't know the specifics there, but, but it wasn't acceptable because there wasn't faith and love, as is explained. But how can that be? How can you, how can you possibly bring an offering to God and have it be motivated in some wrong way. How can it be an evil offering? That doesn't seem to make sense. How does that work? Well, I think when the offering is offered for selfish motives, that's not acceptable. Not in faith and love. And we can give to God hoping to control God. We can bring offerings to God that are really not about faith in God, but something else. You could give, I could say, I'm, I'm going to give $1,000 to God, um, and he needs to bless me back with at least 1000 or some other significant thing. I'm going to give this money expecting a return somehow. And therefore, I, you know, that's why I give. That, that's really a selfish motive. That's a motive that may factor in, but certainly shouldn't drive why we do it. Versus the idea, I give to God because he's given me his own son I'll never be able to outgive him, and I love him with my whole life, and everything I have belongs to him. And so it's my joy to give these things to him. Yeah, he does tend to give back and bless. That's great, but that's not why I'm giving, and he doesn't have to do that. Or you could, your offering could be your obedience. I'm going to obey God because I know that's how I have a successful life. Instead of I obey God because he's so good and great, and I love him no matter what might happen for my obedience. 
the obedience for a successful life thing doesn't always work. Those are the sorts of selfish motives that we can have. And so I think we can understand Cain coming, offering something for selfish reasons, and God saying, I, I, this isn't worship. This is worship of you, not me. Well, Cain didn't like this. He became very angry. And by the way, that's a common reaction for those who are uh, religious for selfish reasons when they don't get what they expect. I was reminded of Antonio Salieri as he's portrayed in the movie Amadeus, uh, how he tries to manipulate God and he gets so mad because Mozart has all the gifts and Mozart is, is an ungodly person. He gets angry and he plots and basically murders uh, Mozart. That's a common reaction. Cain's reaction is common. He didn't get what he wanted through the means he expected. And he's angry and his face falls. He's disappointed. He's depressed. He's frustrated. He's very angry. Yet there's still hope for him even at that moment. God's on the scene here. God confronts him in his anger. He brings out what may be hidden out in the open and says, why are you angry? Why depressed? It doesn't have to be this way, Cain. If you do well, you will, will you not be accepted, he says to him. Well, what does doing well mean? Well, doing well means repenting of your selfishness and your self-reliance, depending on God, putting your faith in God, not yourself, turning away from other things and sin. Put your faith in the Lord. Look to Him. And in that, learn to love Him. That's what doing well is. That's what... God's saying, he's not saying that somehow that, that he has to get his methodology down better and how he does his offering or try harder. No, it, it, the heart has to be changed. And God's calling him to a change of heart to see and enable an example to follow rather than a brother to despise. And God warns him about the alternative. He says, if you, uh, if basically, if you don't do well, what's going to happen? If he refuses faith and love, sin is crouching at the door. And it desires to have him, to consume him, to rule him, to dominate him. There are two choices for Cain here, and really two choices for all of us. The life of dependence and love, or the life where sin, the beast, the animal, the tiger is crouching at the door, ready to pounce and dominate. Interesting, too, to, to hear that sin portrayed that way, right? This is the first mention of the word sin in the Bible, by the way. Till now, it's been implicit, here explicitly named as sin. And how is sin portrayed? Is it portrayed merely as, a, as an idea, as a theological point, as a mindset? No, it's portrayed as a beast. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. It's alive. It's not just a state of mind. It's not just a thing you do. It's a beast. It's alive. And it's crouching there. It's ready to strike. Sounds a lot like what we saw in chapter 3. The snake striking. Striking at the heel of the offspring. And so sin and the serpent, sin and Satan work together in like ways. And there's a, there's a 
reality, there's a, a, an animation of this. It's like a beast, not just an idea. It's active. It's active in pursuing and pouncing and ruling. There are only two options for Cain and for us. John Owen said it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But how? How is Cain supposed to rule over it? How is he supposed to do this? Obviously, this is a beast ready to pounce. The serpent's very smart. We're small and weak. How can we stand a chance? Is Cain just supposed to just do it? You know what you're supposed to do. Just do it. Or is there something else going on here in the storyline? Some powerful hints about the strategy of ruling over sin. I would say that it doesn't involve saying what Eve said, I got this. But something different. We'll get there. Well, Cain has got himself to encourage and exhort him. Calls him to rule instead of be ruled. But what was Cain's choice? Sin rules the day here. It gets dark. Cain seeks Abel out in the field, probably away from everybody else. He assaults him and kills him, his own brother, in cold blood. How far humanity has fallen so fast. God seeks out Cain in a way very similar to how he seeks out Adam, right? Instead of saying, Adam, where are you? He says, Cain, where is your brother? That question is full of meaning. What has happened to your own brother, Cain? God calls Cain out as he does Adam. He confronts both to confront evil, but also to call them away from evil. It's interesting, when Adam is confronted, he, he doesn't deny what's going on, right? God says, Adam, where are you? And Adam comes out from behind the tree like, hey, what's up? You know, uh, why are, you, why are you looking for me? He doesn't do that. He, he admits that there's a problem. He deals with it. Now, he does blame Eve. But here we see something much worse. Do you see Cain's response? How does Cain respond to God? It is amazing what he says. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Wow. He denies it flatly. And then he implies that God is being ridiculous. The, the level of, of just the audaciousness, the, the, the sassiness of Cain that we should catch here. And, and, it, and it shows us just how bad sin is, how far things are going. And, and that, that Cain would, would speak that way to the living God. Not that we are free from that possibility as well. God knows what's going on though, of course. This is the foolishness of sin, thinking we can get away with things. And God responds, what have you done? What have you done? There's horror in this question. And then it says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
This is the first death of a human being. This is the image of God Himself murdered. This is a horror. And in a sense, God Himself is horrified and indignant. The blood of Abel cries to Him from the ground. The horror of murder. The cries of evil and injustice. And the death of Abel. And by the way, in the death of all relatively innocent people, the blood cries to God. When a human being is murdered, treated unjustly, it cries to God, the Holy One, the just, and He will have justice. He will respond. You can make up any lie you want. God will see that justice is done. He responds to Cain that the very ground that holds his brother's blood will now curse him. He will no longer yield to Cain. He will no longer successfully farm. He will be a fugitive and wander looking for food, as some sort of hunter-gatherer and, and uh, looking for a home on a planet that curses him. Cain complains it's too harsh, more than he can bear. Driven from the ground and from the face of God, left to the ravishes of, a, of an evil world. Notice he's most afraid of suffering the same fate he inflicted. And God would have been just just to say, you're on your own. You chose this. I warned you. What does God do? He has mercy. He has mercy on Cain, even horrible Cain. He provides a mark, uh, some sort of mark. I think it's probably a spiritual and physical mark that protects him from being harmed. And he promises sevenfold vengeance on anyone who might attack him. This is a great mercy on Cain who didn't deserve it. And so Cain is exiled from God and he settles in the land of Nod, east of Eden, away from the presence of God. And this is a theme to hear in Genesis and throughout the Bible. There's nothing worse than to be exiled from the presence of God. Hell, essentially, is, is about God's justice, but it is exile from the presence of God, the ultimate eternal exile, the very worst fate for any human. And things have gone from bad to worse in the story, and there's more to come. Things get worse with Cain's offspring. He has a child with his wife, and the child's name is Enoch. There's nothing necessarily special in that name. It means dedication, and there's a, a godly man in Seth's line by the, na- the same name. I think it's just a question of what you're dedicated to. Um, Cain can't farm. He builds a city, and he names it after uh, Enoch. Enoch fathers uh, children, and then we arrive at Lamech. He is the seventh generation from Adam. And there's not said much about the lines, and we, we can't necessarily know too much via names here, but, and we don't know what the name Lamech means, but we know what this guy's like. First, he's the seventh in the line, Cain's line, from Adam. And seven in the Bible uh, usually represents a complete set, and the, and the authors of the Bible, with God, of course, inspiring Scripture, use that number in many places, and will arrange genealogies to present them in terms of seven, numbers of seven, to make statements about completion. And so there's a, a complete set going on here. What sort of complete set is it? It's a set of an evil line. And Lamech is the capstone to this complete set. We'll look at that shortly. Notice what it says about Lamech and his life and family. He has two wives. First time in the Bible you see 
bigamy going on. This is a violation of God's creation ordinance. He made us male and female. He made marriage to be between one man and one woman for all of life. Anything else is a violation of his design. Treating women in such a way that you would have two wives is a violation of God's design and the dignity of the image of God in women. And Lamech would have known this. This is clear and he violates this. And it speaks about who he is and what he's like. Reveals what he's like. Lamech, uh, Lamech's wife, uh, Adah, bears Jabal, the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And then Jubal, the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. And then his other wife, Zillah, bears Tubal-Cain, the forger of metal, and also Nama, his sister. So there are these four children, and they are doing some really interesting things. And you may wonder, why is it mentioning this here? Well, first, they're innovating in, in amazing ways. And I think we need to remember that the grace of God is still at work in the world, even though this is an evil line. And the image of God is still at work in who they are, and so they are creative. They are those who recreate. They are those who, who see the world and, and engage with the world in ways where they create things and they create culture. They create cities, music, these sorts of things. And what we call this is common grace. God is at work in our world, even though there's sinfulness and brokenness. There's a common grace. We still bear the image of God. We're still called uh, in, in some sense, to have dominion over the world and, and to promote culture. This isn't a commentary against culture and technology saying that's evil because this is the evil line. No, it's a commentary on the grace of God at work, even in an evil line. Right in line with the fact that God preserved Cain's life. God allows them to prosper. Then we learn more about Lamech in his statement at the end. God pours out his common grace on all people. And we are undeserving. He has done that. And certainly Lamech is undeserving. He takes on these two wives in defiance of God's order. And he outdoes Cain in murderous intent. At the end, you have Lamech's song. This is not a good song. This is a celebration of murder and arrogance. In Hebrew, in English, it's Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Things have gotten worse in the line of Cain, and they're going to get even worse. As we go into chapter 6, you'll see more. The reality of the human condition under the curse of sin is demonstrated here. And this is the natural condition we ought to understand. This is the condition of humanity, our natural condition. There's a common myth in, in modern Western culture of the, of this, uh, the, the noble uh, tribesmen, the, the innocent, primitive tribesmen that's out there. Um, and it's not reality. The reality is that many of the tribes out there who have not experienced the light of the gospel or the influence of a somewhat Christianized culture live in great darkness. We studied two years ago the life of eight important missionaries in our church. One of them was Elka of the Waiwai, a tribe in the Amazon. 
Elka was a pastor and church planter who was rescued out of great darkness and led his tribe and many others, other tribes. They were amazingly in their, amazing in their boldness to share Christ in that, that area. Previous to that, the YYs lived under constant fear of evil spirits that weren't figments of their imagination, by the way, but real, with real power. You can read the stories. They lived by betrayal and murder and sexual infidelity. And the high point of tribal life was their yearly drunken orgy as a tribe. There was no innocent tribesmen there. Other tribe I know, the Iteris of Papua New Guinea, came to Christ miraculously after 20 years of effort in translating the Bible and, and presenting Christ. God did a wonder and transformed them from a culture that had so much evil. Murder and rape were normal parts uh, of the culture. Betrayal, evil spirits, warfare, and constant fear. And if we continue to decline as a culture, the same level of darkness will appear here. Uh, William Kilpatrick, in his book, Why Johnny Can't Tell Right from Wrong, says, in 1940, teachers listed the following concerns in order of magnitude that interfered with the child's education. A, talking out of turn. B, chewing gum. Making noise. Running in the hallways. Getting out of line. Wearing improper clothing and not putting paper in the wastebasket. Today, and this is early 90s, teachers ranked the following concerns in order of magnitude, which interfere with child's education. A, drug abuse. B, alcohol abuse. C, teen pregnancy. D, suicide. E, rape. F, robbery. And G, assault. This is the reality of the human condition. I'm not trying to be a cultural warrior here. I'm not trying to be an old fogey who wishes for the old days. Just trying to point out the reality we're seeing in chapter 4, humanity apart from God. In this, I got this mentality will decline and will demonstrate the same sort of darkness. Yet, there's hope in our story. Verses 25 and 26, we see something happening. We see a light dawning. We read that Adam knew his wife and she wore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. This is Mr. Appointed. Seth is God's appointed replacement for the man who was killed, Abel. This is an important aspect of the story here that Eve now understands she doesn't get it herself. She needs God to intervene and to work. And God raises up this line, this line of Seth. That's a different sort of line. And, and, and through Seth and his descendants, mankind starts to call on the Lord. And this is a theme that, that we see throughout Genesis, by the way. Mankind constantly running away from God and God intervening. God sovereignly in His grace. While we run the other way, reaching out in power, transforming lives, and bringing people back to Himself. Selecting people out of darkness. So we're going to see Abraham called. We're going to see Isaac called. Even though Abraham and Sarah tried their own, I got this thing with Ishmael. God is faithful. And then so forth and so on. God is going to pursue mankind, though we run the other way. And so Seth is raised up. And Seth gives us an understanding, I think, of, of how we, back to that question, how do we rule over sin? How does this work? What does this story teach us? 
Well, Seth's name is God appointed. And then Seth has a son and his name is Enosh. This means man, but it's a form of man that's used elsewhere in Scripture, usually to, co- to communicate the weakness and frailty of mankind. So Psalm 8.4, what is man, Enosh, that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. Psalm 93, you return man to dust, Enosh, and say, return, O children of man. Psalm 103, as for man, Enosh, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and his place knows it no more. The line of Seth represents a different approach to life, of weakness and dependence on God. The line of Seth tells us how we rule over sin. It comes this way, by recognizing our weakness and brokenness and sinfulness, being honest about it before God and even before others. Being humble and desperate for rescue. Recognizing unless he comes along and appoints a true human who will come in and fulfill all that he requires and rescue us, we are all sunk without him acting. We are desperate for his work. Only he can save, and I have good news for you. There's one who's come, his very name means saves. Yeshua, Jesus in the Greek, God saves. He is the appointed seed. And all who recognize their weakness and sin and look to him are saved. Saved from the darkness of their own sin. Saved as part of God's redemptive plan to rescue humanity and the whole earth. Romans 5, 6-8 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That righteous one, the appointed one, died in your place. Fulfilled all righteousness. Offer that up on the cross for you. As you recognizing your need for an appointed Savior. Recognizing your weakness and inability. Recognizing that I I don't got this would find in him forgiveness and life and transforming power. God has got this, not us. And this story demonstrates that truth. Hebrews 7.25 says he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Jesus has got this. God has got this. We look to him. And so as I close... Let us learn from our story and look to God's appointed one who alone has accomplished salvation. I don't got this. He does. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are and what you've done and what this means to us. I pray for for just fresh faith in our hearts in Jesus the one who saves. And as we look to you, Jesus, we would experience forgiveness and life. And by you alone, we would be able to rule over sin.
and live truly. We pray in Christ's name.